2014, Guinness World Records penned another profound achievement. An extraordinary and exhausting human feat was captured and put down in the record books. An accomplishment that leaves us scratching our heads and searching our minds, as virtually all the records do in the Guinness World Records. My, my mom basically would give me the Guinness Book of World Records every year because that's kind of the nerd side of me. It's one of those stocking stuffers that you can pretty much guarantee I'm going to like it. And Noah has kept on the baton. Well, what was the record broken and made this time? A man preached the longest sermon ever. So some volunteers this morning, do not look on your phones. How long do you think the longest sermon ever recorded made the books? Vincent? How, how many? Say that again. A week. Whew. All right, we started off with a really big number, a week long. All right, anyone else? Six hours. Anyone else? Eight. 24. 36. 48. Maybe I should have had a wager here that everyone would kind of get going. So we've had anywhere from six to like a week. You want to know the answer? 53 hours. And you thought my sermons were long. After more than two days in the pulpit, Pastor Zach Zinder of a Mount Dora church in Florida set a world record for longest speech marathon. The 31-year-old pastor of the Cross Church delivered a 53-hour, 18-minute sermon with the help of 200 pages of notes, and listen to this, Michaela, more than 600 PowerPoint slides that began on Friday, November 7th at 12.18 and ended on Sunday, November 9th. Oh, 12.18 on November 9th, rather. Uh, the church organized congregants at all hours to hear Zender's sermon that spanned from Genesis to Revelation. Pastor Zach was then interviewed about the whole process. Zach, I'm guessing you had to do some research on the world records for longest sermon. What got you thinking about this idea? Zach said, my wife leads the kids' ministry at our church. God bless her. <laughs> and there was an activity she was doing with the kids that involved Guinness World Records. I remember thinking, I wonder what the longest sermon ever preached was. First, I love to preach, and anytime God's word goes out, it accomplishes something. And so the longer I preach, the more opportunity for the grace of Jesus to be shared and to make a big impact in someone's life. Secondly, I'm really competitive, and I thought it would be pretty cool to have a world record. As I investigated Guinness, they did not have a category for the longest sermon ever, but they did send back the longest speech marathon and as an alternative. Zach was then asked, what was the preparation stage like? I'm assuming that preaching for 50-plus hours straight means you had to put together a year's worth of sermons. How did you get ready for this? He said the preparation was by far the hardest part of the speech. I had thought of this idea over a year before we actually did it, and I started preparing six months prior. If people were going to come and listen to me preach for two or four hour shifts, 
Some even stayed for more than 40 hours of it. That I wanted to make a quality event. Nobody had ever preached this long before, so I started like any sermon by preparing an outline. My goal is to preach through the entire Bible, from Genesis through Revelation. So I picked out 50 different topics, 50 different categories, and arranged them chronologically. From there, I went through past sermons and tried to fill in the topics. I had notes and manuscripts for 35 out of the 50. So I had to fill in the other 15 just like any other sermon. All in all, this was about two years worth of preaching for a normal pastor who preaches every week. Zach was then asked, well, what was the most difficult point in delivering the sermon? He said, training myself to eat while talking. I had a power nap about 24 hours in, and I woke up and was very lighthearted. I had eaten enough the first 24, I hadn't eaten enough the first 24 hours, so my medical team, I had four nurses from the church that rotated during different shifts. They would pump me with a big breakfast, and I got more comfortable eating in front of people while talking. I got so comfortable that I even ate a steak and lobster at hour 36 while preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't get better than that. My throat felt awful about eight hours in, and I was unsure if I would make it. But again, I hadn't taken anything at that point. They pumped me with some hot honey tea, throat spray, and lozenges, and I was good to go. My voice held throughout, and I was about as sharp at the end as I was at the beginning. Finally, Zach was asked, what did you do after you finished preaching? He said, I went home, and I took a seven-hour nap and then watched part of a Sunday night football game, then fell asleep again for another seven hours. I was pretty out of it. Apparently, my kids came home, and I talked with them for a couple of minutes, but I have no recollection of that. Now, before anyone gets nervous, I do not intend on trying to break Pastor Zach's record today. (laughs) However, I share this unusual accomplishment by this ambitious pastor in an effort to draw out some principles for us that I think are fascinating to look at. First, research was done. And afterward, a clear goal was set. Then much preparation had gone into accomplishing this goal. In fact, half a year in gathering materials, and not to mention a couple of years' worth of sermons, were put into place. Then came the transition. The transition from just being a curious thought and something he talked about with his wife to finally doing something. But you see, it all began with a desire. It began with an ambition that was stirring up within him. He then counted the cost, weighing out all the hard work that would go into actually accomplishing this ambition. And then he put it action. But Pastor Zach also had support, didn't he? He couldn't do it by himself. He needed the help of church members who contributed different forms of support and encouragement throughout the process. I mean, at the end of the day, what's a 53-hour sermon if nobody's willing to sit and listen to it? But more than his friends, more than his family, More than his fellow church members, he ultimately needed the help of Almighty God. 
Friends, I don't know what the goals are that you have in your life this year, what resolutions you've made, what ambitions are stirring in your heart. I would probably venture to say that none of us are trying to embark on breaking a world record this year. But I would imagine we're all hoping to improve on something in our lives. Accomplish a goal or a desire that matters to us. Maybe become someone we're currently not. Or do something we've never done before. Something we've left undone. Or something we've never even tried before. I mean, this list could go on and on, right? Lose 20 pounds, learn a new language, eat vegetables and not spit it out, get out of debt, get married, stay married, make more money, start a business, join a local church, read through the Bible in a year, or for some of us, it might simply be staying a Christian, keeping the faith not giving up on following Jesus. Friends, the amount of goals and ambitions we have, I think for every true follower of Jesus, somewhere down deep, we all want to please God with our lives. We want to mature. We want to grow up spiritually. We want to be used of God in this one life we got as an instrument to see his church built up, to be used of God in such a way that brings him honor and glory and and really brings us joy and peace as we serve King Jesus. Fellow Christian, is that your heart this morning? I mean, really. Is pleasing the Lord amidst all your other goals and ambitions in life, is it at the top? the list. How can it, someone like us, you and I, grow up and become a mature man or woman of God? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to the New Testament letter of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 572. This morning, and over the next several weeks, we're taking a brief break from our study in the Gospel of Mark, and instead we're going to be looking at several passages of Scripture to help us think about prayer and wisdom and perspective as we walk together into a new year of life and ministry. This morning, we're actually going to be looking at a prayer that the Apostle Paul had penned to believers that he had never actually never met face-to-face before. But what we'll see is that it's a prayer that all believers should pray for one another, whether we've met them in person or not. And it's a prayer that I think, as we'll find out, that it's necessary for us to learn to pray if we want to please the Lord in our lives. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. The author of this letter is the Apostle Paul. We see this very clearly throughout the letter as he uses the personal pronoun, I. He even makes it super personal at the end of the letter. So turn over to Colossians 4, verse 18, the last verse. Colossians 4, verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. But as in all his writings, Paul began this letter back in Colossians 1, so you can turn back, by very simply stating his calling from God, his ministry assignment, uh, mentioning who was with him and describing who the audience was he was writing to. Look with me in Colossians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Uh, Paul penned this letter probably sometime in the early A.D. 60s while he was imprisoned in Rome. Uh, Paul knew about believers in Colossae, not because he had been there evangelizing, uh, but because he got news from one of their own residents that was evidently converted under Paul's ministry, most likely somewhere in Ephesus during Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, this man's name was Epaphras. Epaphras is mentioned a few times in this letter in chapter 1 and in chapter 4. He lived in Colossae, and he had gotten wind, or maybe he was visiting family and friends, that there was a traveling apostle, there was a traveling preacher in Ephesus about 100 miles or so from him. He heard the gospel and was subsequently converted. As I stated briefly earlier, if you look over in Colossians 2, verse 1, just kind of glance down, you'll notice that unlike the Corinthians and unlike the Ephesians and unlike most of the letters in the New Testament, Paul says he never met these believers face to face. So we can safely assume that Epaphras and not Paul was the man that God used to plant this gospel preaching church. Friends, that's just a good reminder for us, isn't it? We should boldly and generously proclaim the gospel to as many people as we can. And we should never underestimate how God might save someone. That one person you thought wasn't listening to anything you were saying, the Lord may have changed their heart and used them to plant a new church one day. Friends, God is always in the business of doing more than you and I can fathom. CCBC in 2022, pray that our church would gossip the gospel. Let's give our town 
and the River Valley something to talk about? Why don't we use our lips to tell others about the saving grace in Jesus Christ? And friends, just like God used Paul in Epaphras' life, you never know how God might use you to lead someone else to Christ who may even plant a church one day. Colossae was located in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, about 100 miles or so east from Ephesus. It was in the region of Phrygia. Uh, This ancient city isn't talked about a whole lot throughout the New Testament in comparison to the other places. But if you ever read Ephesians and Colossians back-to-back, you'll notice some strikingly similar parallels in their content. Uh, So whatever we can learn about Colossae, we, we can know that Paul was trying to bring home similar issues in both places. One thing we do note about Colossians is how much detail Paul spends on teaching the deity of Jesus Christ and his lordship over creation and the church and how knowing Jesus should have an effect on how we live our lives. The false teachings that were threatening the church were probably a mixture of Jewish legalism, Gnosticism, and other mystical beliefs regarding angels and human traditions that were evidently undermining the gospel. You can read Colossians chapter 2 to learn more about those false teachings. And then in chapter 4, Paul mentions a few other names, Tychicus and Onesimus. Uh, These were probably the two men that God used to bring the letter from Rome to the Colossians. But before Paul expounds on important theological truths. Before he drives home commands for these Christians to obey King Jesus, he opens this letter with a prayer. A prayer that we too at CCBC this morning should be adopting into our own prayer life. Friends, scripture-based prayers are fertilizer for our spiritual growth. Scripture-based prayers are a fertilizer for our spiritual growth. So if you're taking notes, I have two main headings that will serve as an outline. The first point takes up 95% of the sermon. The second point, much, much, much shorter. Point number one, a prayer we all need to keep on praying. A prayer... We need to all keep on praying. That's verses 9 to 12. Point number two, a promise we all need to keep on pondering. A promise we all need to keep on pondering. Let's get point number one, a prayer we need to keep on praying. What does Paul pray? On behalf of these believers, he had never even met. Look with me again at verses 9 to 12. And so from the day we heard, he's speaking about the day he got news that these people became Christians. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints and light. Uh, So really, boil it all down, what was Paul's primary prayer request for these believers? Paul prays that they know God's will so that the lives they live please the Lord. He prays that they know God's will so that the lives they live would please the Lord. Now, when you and I think of knowing God's will, many many of us immediately jump to specific thoughts about God's will. We tend to jump to thoughts about knowing very specific details of God's sovereign decree or secret will in our lives, or maybe even his will of direction in his providence over our lives. Things like, should I work at Arkbest? Or should I work at Arvest? Should I marry Sally? Or should I marry Susie? Should I move out of my parents' basement? Or should I get my own place? Should I serve in children's ministry? Or should I serve on the sound team? Should I go into the military? Or should I go to college? Should I sell the business? Or should I work another five to ten years in it? And friends, those questions are good questions. They're fine questions to ask. They're quite natural for us to ask those questions. But friends, I don't think that's what Paul is necessarily praying for these believers to know necessarily. Instead of God God telling these believers what the future holds before it gets here, instead of Paul praying that God would mysteriously show a neon sign in the sky that says, go here, do this. Paul simply prays to God to fill them. Did you catch that? He's asking that they might be filled. Specifically, though, that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So first of all, what does Paul mean here when he asks God that they, these believers be filled? I mean, are they kind of like walking buckets with a hole at the bottom that kind of drips everything? I mean, what is Paul getting at? That's kind of a strange way to pray for someone. Well, to be filled here, it gives the picture of influence or being dominated by something. Take, for an example, an emotion. Think of the time you were the most scared you've ever been. You're physically frozen. Your eyes are really big. You were filled with fear. Or think about the time you were the most excited you've ever been. You were probably jumping and clapping and shouting and grinning from ear to ear. You were filled with with joy. It means that person is overcome by or overwhelmed by something, some object, maybe some food, some event, or a person that was causing them to be controlled with a particular emotion, like fear or joy. To be filled then indicates a strong motivation to do something. 
a strong motivation that occurs, first of all, in here, in the heart, to produce outwardly a desired effect from us. So if someone is filled with boldness, they might do something or they might say something they naturally and normally would be very timid to do. A good visual here is how strong gusts of wind can affect a sitting sailboat. The strong wind pushes and carries the sail forward so as to move the boat in a specific direction. In that sense, the the wind is filling the sails. The sails are being filled by the wind's power. Uh, The wind, therefore, is influencing the boat's course. The, The wind is driving the boat from standing still and becoming stagnant and moving it towards a particular direction. So, when Paul prays that these believers be filled, he is saying this, I ask that God would powerfully influence, strongly dominate, drive you forward with what? What wind is Paul asking God to move these believers' hearts and lives forward with? Well, look with me. He says there in verse 9, the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Friends, Paul wants these believers to know God's will. For it not to be a mystery. For it not to be a corn maze, as if God's hiding in the dark, trying to teach us to guess what he wants us to do. But he doesn't say know God's will merely intellectually like memorizing a few Bible verses to prove you have a good memory. No, the word he uses in this context has more to do with an intimate encounter with knowing God. Uh, Friends, he wants them to have a full and robust comprehension of what it means to know God. Uh, Friends, even more just succinctly, he wants them to experience knowing God. Friends, it's like the difference between knowing some facts about surfing in Hawaii and then actually riding a wave on a surfboard in Hawaii. Both of them can say things about waves in Hawaii, but only one has ever ridden that wave. The facts have become a reality in your life. This is that experiential knowledge, epigenosco, that Jesus wants for all his disciples. And when he mentions the knowledge of God's will, did you notice he didn't say our will? Didn't say our daddy or mommy's will, our government's will. He said his will. It just simply says, I, I want you to be filled with knowledge of what pleases God. What God approves of, of a particular truth an attitude, an action that God delights in. Paul wants them to have an experiential knowledge of what pleases God. In other words, he doesn't want these Christians to think of their relationship with God as theoretical. 
make-believe, like playing a video game or something. You know, we're, I'm playing a war game, I'm playing a football game, but I've never actually stepped on the field and played it. Paul says, I don't want you to view the Christian life like that. I don't want you to just have a bunch of head knowledge that you can spout off. I want you to taste I want you to see, I want you to experience God's word transforming you. I want you to know God better than the person sitting next to you in the church today. Friends, that's what the epigonosco, that's what the experiential knowledge that he's speaking about here. And friends, he says that can only happen. We can only begin to experience pleasing and knowing God's will when we're given something that we're lacking. And he tells us right there, we need spiritual wisdom and understanding. What is that? <laughs> I mean, can I go to a store and buy it? Is it somewhere in the back, back room of the church? What is spiritual wisdom and understanding? I mean, this is what Paul wants them to be filled with. This is what Paul wants them to be influenced by, this has got to be pretty important, right? If someone gave you a bag of nails and said, build me a barn, well, thanks for the nails, but where's the tools? How am I actually going to do that? Paul says, in order to discern and know God's will, you got to have spiritual wisdom and understanding. And the fact that he starts off and says, this is a spiritual wisdom, that means it's a wisdom that only God can give you. It's a wisdom that only God, through the Holy Spirit, can impart to you. Now, to be certain, there are all different types of wisdom that you and I can accrue in this life. You already know this. In our everyday tongue, we might say someone has book smarts, where they can accumulate a lot of head knowledge over a particular subject. So take a doctor who's just graduated from med school. Take a grad student in law school. Take an MDiv student in seminary. They might consider themselves as experts because of how much they know. Or think about what we might call street smarts or the school of hard knocks. People who have learned to survive life through trial and error. They've learned how to bounce back with pain and disappointments. And friends, usually older people talk about this. They have what you call old man or older woman wisdom where it's just simply you've lived a long time and you've seen a lot so you have some sanctified common sense to offer people even the bible acknowledges there are different forms of wisdom but there's also wisdom that the bible warns us against it warns us to have nothing to do with in fact paul wrote to the corinthians in his first letter he mentions things like the wisdom of this world 1 Corinthians 1.20, the wisdom of men, 1 Corinthians 2.5, the wisdom of this age, 1 Corinthians 2.6, human wisdom, 1 Corinthians 2.13. Uh, James, as our brother Jansen's been walking us through, he brings out this whole idea of wisdom we should pursue and wisdom we should avoid. In James 3, he contrasts wisdom that comes from God with wisdom that is not from above. Wisdom that is bad for you spiritually. Wisdom that James says is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. 
this is the type of wisdom that James says produces jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every vile practice. So one of the things Paul was having to do in this letter was combat the seductive allure of earthly and merely human wisdom. He was warning them about adopting a worldview that was antithetical to a Christian worldview. They were being tempted to live out their Christian lives on wisdom that did not originate with God. Instead, they were being tempted to begin building their whole Christian lives on wisdom that was manufactured by men. Men who did not know God themselves. Whether it was religious traditions void of biblical truth, or distortions of biblical truth mixed in with moral error, spiritual danger was becoming a real threat for them. A spiritual danger that Paul says could even derail their faith. Friends, the same spiritual danger that was in the Colossians' life is the same spiritual danger that can derail any one of our faith too. Members of CCBC, be discerning of who your closest friends are. Be discerning of who your closest friends are. Be discerning of the pastors and authors you listen to. Be discerning over the pastors and authors you listen to, and while we're at that, let's get a little more modern. Be discerning of what you read and listen to on the internet or on TV or even in movies. Friends, we should be discerning who we're yoking our lives with. What we open our minds to on a daily basis will have, not might have, will have a profound effect on our hearts and even the course of our life. Friends, Think about this for a minute. How did you get where you're at today? How did you become who you are today? Both the good and the bad. Somewhere along the way, you've been influenced. You've made real decisions from your own heart, but you have been influenced. None of us are born in a black hole. Our families, our church traditions, the state we grew up in, the town we grew up in, we are all being influenced. Friends, that's why we should ask ourselves some pretty probing questions. Do what my closest friends talk about the most help or hurt my relationship with Jesus? Do what my closest friends talk about the most, what they encourage me to do, what they inspire me to do, does it help or hurt my relationship with Jesus? And then, is what I'm listening to or watching, filling my mind with wisdom that's from God, wisdom that is consistent with God's word, or is it wisdom from this world? Friends, Romans 12, verse 2 might be a great verse to kind of copy, paste, put in a nice little frame, put it next to the computer, put it next to your bed, put it inside your Bible, and begin thinking about this well this year. Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable 
and perfect. You see, these, these dear believers, just like us, were, be, were being tempted to fill their gas tanks with food and mud instead of gasoline. So Paul was shepherding them. He was loving them by offering this prayer of intercession for them. Uh, through his prayer and really through the whole letter of Colossians, he was trying to feed them good spiritual food. When they were being tempted to eat spiritual junk food and even poison, uh, the wisdom that these false teachers were indoctrinating these dear saints with was apparently undermining and even denying the full deity of Jesus Christ and his full humanity. And in turn, it was producing a false piety, a false way of understanding how to live the Christian life. Legalism on the one hand, what I do makes me acceptable to God, and asceticism on the other, what I cut off from my life makes me acceptable to God. And like every faithful pastor would care for his church members today, Paul asked God to give these believers what they most needed, what they most needed to move forward like wind pushing a sailboat forward in the Christian life. Paul wanted what I want for us as a church. He wanted them to make progress, to grow up, to mature in the Christian faith. And friends, how on earth was that going to happen? Where do you get this wisdom that comes from above? How do we gain access to God to get this wisdom? God's wisdom and God's understanding only comes through knowing God's Son, Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 3, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Author Richard Chin puts it this way, if you want knowledge of what pleases God, and if you want spiritual wisdom and understanding, look to Jesus. As we come to see Jesus more clearly, so we will grow in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of God's will. Friends, that's what this whole letter is virtually all about. It's about coming to know God, who is spirit, through the one he has sent. Jesus is the image of the invisible God who left heaven and came to this earth putting on human flesh and becoming a man. He died in our place. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Back in verses 3 to 8, Paul had thanked God for the transformation that God had done in their life when they heard the gospel, when they believed it. These Colossians were once fools in the eyes of God. And when they turned to Jesus, they became fools in the eyes of the world. But when you and I believe the gospel, friends, we become wise before the eyes of God. You see, the gospel is the good news of God's wisdom penetrating the foolishness of man's sin. Guys, this world's jacked up. Sin makes us look at everything upside down. 
We view God wrong. We view Jesus wrong. We view wisdom wrong. We view ourselves wrong. It's only when God's wisdom is revealed to us by his spirit through his son that we turn our backs on worldly wisdom and we see true wisdom as God has ordained it. You see, these once lost and hell-bound sinners, just like you and I, who were fools doing what's right in our own eyes, like sheep who've gone astray, each to our own way, the Lord had given them an about face and gave them new life in Christ. He gave them a new faith for Jesus. He gave them a new love for Jesus' people. And he gave them a new hope, which was where their new home address was found, in heaven with Jesus and his people. Uh, To my non-Christian friend, you might be thinking that becoming a Christian is a foolish thing. You might think becoming a Christian is an utterly crazy thing to do. Welcome, Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, a place full of crazies. But friend, when Jesus came to save us, as he can do in your life, he showed us that We were the ones who were foolish, and he was the one who's always been wise. You see, when Jesus came into our life, he flipped our world back where it needs to be. We see God accurately. We see sin accurately. We see our marriages accurately. We see his church accurately. We see discipleship accurately. We see suffering accurately. We see death accurately because he gives us a wisdom that we didn't have before. Oh, friends, no philosopher, no university, no scientist, no even well-intentioned grandma or grandpa can give you this kind of wisdom apart from God. God is God only wise, immortal, invisible. That's the God we serve. He needs no counselor. He needs no degree. He needs no scientist to tell him how the universe is going. He has the whole world in his hands. Friends, this same God sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the flesh to live a perfect life of wisdom and trust. He lived a perfect life and led himself to the cross to die as a substitute, bearing the righteous wrath of God towards our folly, towards our foolishness, towards our sin. Jesus stood in our place. He was buried, and three days later, God raised him from the dead. If you turn from your sins today and trust in Christ, turning your back on worldly wisdom and even human wisdom and look to the wisdom of God made flesh, you can be reconciled to God today. You can have your sins forgiven, and you can know God, not intellectually, but little by little, experientially, day by day. Well, like every faithful pastor and every faithful Christian mom or dad who want their children to grow up, Paul wanted these believers to grow up. He wanted them to mature. He wanted them to be what God created them to be and had saved them to be. In fact, if you really kind of want to know what was the mission statement for Paul, what was his heart? It's the same really ministry statement or heart that every faithful pastor, every board of elders will have for the church they shepherd. Look at Colossians 1.28. Colossians 1.28. Here's what this whole ministry was all about. 
This is a great text to even use as fuel for praying for me and our elders. Uh, Me being one of the elders, of course, we need your prayers to stay faithful to this task. Colossians 1.28, him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is God's will that every believer mature in Christ. It is God's will that every believer, including myself, become more and more like Jesus Christ. You might be saying, well, Brother Blake, how exactly do you become more like Christ? What is a mature believer anyway? I mean, do you have to have like a four-hour quiet time in the morning? Do you have to fast twice a week? Do you have to read old dead men's books? Do you have to know Greek and Hebrew? Is that what makes a mature Christian? Graham Goldsworthy puts it this way. A mature Christian is one who is able to look at the whole of reality through Christian eyes. A mature Christian is one who is able to look at the whole of reality through Christian lives. So if someone were to say, what do you think about marriage? What do you believe about it? You think about it in a Christian way. What do you think about parenting? I think about it in a Christian way. What do I think about economics? or the government, or suffering, or injustice, or the church, or my boss at work, or how I use my time in retirement, or sin, or the devil, or heaven. You think about it Christianly. Friends, that is what we as a church are aiming to do when we gather together every Sunday, every Tuesday night, every Wednesday morning, for every Bible study that you and I are part of. It is to help us think biblically, that the light switch turns on when someone says, hey, what's your opinion on this? What are your thoughts on this? What do you think we ought to do with this? The first light switch that turns on is, what does God say? What does his words, to the wind with my opinion, to the wind with what's popular, to the wind with even what you think. I want to know what God says about this. Friends, that's God's will, not just for pastors but for every follower of Jesus. And friends, that's that's exactly what Paul's praying for here. To become mature is what pleases the Lord. Look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Friends, very simply put, is pleasing the Lord what your life is all about? When you wake up tomorrow, if God wakes you up, is pleasing the Lord your greatest desire? When you have your meal this afternoon over lunch and dinner and you're, whoever you're hanging out with, will what you talk about, somewhere in that conversation are you thinking, is what we're talking about pleasing to the Lord? When you get blasted with an evil, ungodly email and you're tempted to just shred them with your words, Before you hit send, have you ever thought, does this please the Lord? One habit that I got from a preacher that I'm wanting to constantly remind myself is every time I get away from this pulpit and I sit in that chair, the first thought in my mind I want to grow in this is not what did my wife think, not what you think, Lord, did that please you? 
Friends, everything in the Christian life is to be centered and filtered through, does this please you, Lord? That's exactly what our lives are to be about. So ask yourself a really honest question. How'd you do last week? When you went into work and you got an order from your boss you didn't like, was your response, I want to please the Lord? You had an unkind word said to you about someone that you like and love and care for. Was your response, I want to please the Lord. Friends, every time we're tempted to sin, every time we're put in situations to serve Christ's church, every sphere of our life, in every circumstance, at all times, in every situation, Christians ought to want to please the Lord. Friends, that's what makes God's will so simple. You and I don't have to know what tomorrow holds in all its details. You don't have to have a 10-year plan that's well played out. If your heart posture is pointing north, I want to please the Lord. The Lord is wise enough to get you from point A to point B. We mess it up. Our foolishness, our folly is what gets the arrow off, not God. Just aim to please the Lord, and he can guide his sheep through whatever decisions you and I have to make. But friends, let's just get real. There are some major hindrances to pleasing the Lord, and they start right here. Two enemies that are hindrances from you and I truly pleasing the Lord 24-7 in all circumstances, and that's selfishness and people-pleasing selfishness and people-pleasing. Selfishness goes like this. I care about me over the other person. I'm going to get mine when I want it, no matter the cost. Selfishness uses people for personal gain. Lou Priolo says it this way, love is being more concerned with what I can give than with what I can get. Selfishness is being more concerned with what I can get than with what I can give. And friends, the other side of that ugly monster is people-pleasing. If you're not seeking to please the Lord and not seeking just to merely and only please yourself, selfishness, you're probably enslaved to pleasing others. People-pleasing is also known as the fear of man. When we're teenagers, we call it peer pressure on that term. Let's just call it Bible terms. People-pleasing and the fear of man. Call it like it is. Friends, people-pleasing is when King Jesus gets pushed aside in your affections, pushed aside in who you ultimately are trying to please, and someone else fits that bill. Would you characterize yourself as a people-pleaser? When you're faced with a tough decision at work, is your first thought, what will my boss think of me? Or, what will most honor God in my work through this decision? When you're faced with the challenge of confronting a professing believer who's living in sin, is your first thought, will I lose my friendship with this person by bringing this up? Will they reject me if I give them a loving correction or rebuke? Or 
is it will this concern I have for this person honor the Lord and show I deeply care for their souls? Friends, at the end of the day, the first thought that creeps into your mind when you have a choice between I want to most honor the Lord and please him or I want to most kind of keep face, friends, that's the Lord bringing to mind maybe an idol in your life. Maybe somebody you've put in the place of Jesus and it needs to be dealt with. Well, friends, what does then a life that pleases the Lord look like? Well, he uses these participles in the next section that are really entitled there just to say, well, here's what the colors are going to look like. Here's what the patterns are going to look like. This is what the aroma of what radiates off a person who wants to please the Lord. And they're really quick. I'm just going to name four in rapid fire. Number one, service. Number two, study. Number three, perseverance. Number four, praise. Number one, service. Number two, study. Number three, perseverance. And number four, praise. Let's start with service. Look at verse 10. He mentions the life given to pleasing the Lord will bear fruit in every good work. Friends, serving others from a heart of love, not selfishness, not people-pleasing, but love is what a transformed life in Christ looks like. John Calvin once said, There is nothing in which men resemble God more truly than in doing good to others. Number two, study. Study. Specifically, study your Bibles with the aim, look at what verse 10 says, increasing in the knowledge of God. Friends, I'm going to make your New Year's resolution super plain for you. Growing in your knowledge of God is the most important thing you can do with your life this year. Growing in your knowledge of God is the most important thing you can do with your life this year. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Like Pastor Zach did with his Guinness World Records, start with a plan and then act on it. Find a Bible reading plan. If you're a member of CCBC, uh, the weekly email that you may or may not read, if you scan down, you'll see a Bible reading plan link. It gives you like over 20 different versions you can look at. And then maybe invite a few friends that can encourage you in that plan. Maybe even invite a few friends to study the Bible with you this year. Maybe start with Colossians. I just gave you a lot of sermon notes and free commentary right there. It's four chapters. Maybe you and a friend for the next four months spend a month at a time in the chapters of Colossians. Begin to study, memorize, meditate, and challenge each other to obey the Lord. And friends, I understand all of us are in different places of life. All of us have different moving parts. Do your best to eliminate as many excuses as you can for not being in your Bible. That's not a brow-beating comment from a pastor. That's one that that woman right there can tell you. I am too ungodly not to have God's word in my thick skull. I am too ungodly 
not to be in the Bible. I think that's partly why God made me a pastor. He said, I'm going to have you so steeped in the scriptures, your head's going to have to be filled with me because I know who you are apart from me. So friends, that's not me browbeating you. That's me telling you the only reason it drives me to this book is because I know who I am when my thoughts aren't on him. Find some friends to help you. Eliminate as many excuses as you can and act on it. Number three, perseverance. Perseverance, a life that pleases God, will learn to trust him in all circumstances and even with difficult people. Difficult circumstances and difficult people. That's what he says there in verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Friends, if you're in a really difficult circumstance or you're having to deal with some difficult people in your life, I can tell you if you're anything like me, the first thing that you want to pray is, God, get this circumstance out of my life. Get this person out of my life and then I'll be happy. I think the heart that wants to please God will say something like this. Lord, if you're going to keep this circumstance in my life, then teach me how to please you in this circumstance. Instead of taking this difficult person out of my life, teach me how to love this person with patience. That's what God's will is, with endurance and patience, with joy. And then number four, praise. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. Friends, praise and thanksgiving is not just one day a year we put on the calendar. Praise and thanksgiving is the overflow of a sinner who's been saved from the wrath of God. Friends, we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. God the Father has qualified us. He has made us fit to receive all that belongs to Jesus, which God gives to his children. Friends, this is the prayer that Paul constantly prayed. Did you notice he says he prayed without ceasing? That means this is a prayer that you and I ought to adopt in all our prayers in one way or another. But friends, as we pray, we need to ponder upon a promise that never changes, which is point number two as we close, a promise we all need to keep on pondering, a promise we need to keep on pondering. Look at verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, the first half of this sermon, most of us would be tempted, I just need to do better. That's legalism. There's your problem. There's my problem. I need to preach better. That might be true. But if that's all I'm getting away from today, that's legalism. That's not Christianity. I want to please the Lord. What's the fuel? What's the grounds? You see, the Christian life is not about us trying to earn God's favor. The Christian life is not like climbing some ladder to keep God happy with us. The Christian life is not a perfectionistic tightrope that if I didn't have my quiet time three days in a row, lightning's going to strike me, I'm going to fall to the ground. Guys, that's not Christianity. That's a works-based salvation that promotes fear and guilt in people. It doesn't free them. No, what's amazing about this section here 
is that Paul uses verb tenses that speak about past and permanent realities that God has done in your life in Christ that has ongoing and indefinite results. He uses this promise to say, when you don't please me as you should, I still love you. When you don't honor me with that email, I still love you. When you drop the ball with your spouse or your neighbor or that church member, I still love you. In Christ, we've already been delivered from the fangs and chains of Satan's dominion. In Christ, we have already been adopted and accepted into his kingdom. Friends, that's why Paul says we've been redeemed. We've been purchased. You might go to Walmart in the next week or two and see a lot of people bring back a lot of gifts that, well, either A, didn't fit, or B, you didn't like. We take them back. We show our receipt. We, we want our money in return. Friends, when Jesus died for the sins of his people, he doesn't take any of us back. When he said, I loved you, he meant it. His blood is the payment. His life was the cost. He will not take any of us and return us. We belong to him. That's why Paul would later say in Colossians, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So yes, do Christians still sin? Yes. But our status before God never changes. Do we always put Jesus first in our life? No. But Jesus is a jealous bridegroom. And he brings up to our minds when we have begun becoming faithless and promiscuous by putting something else in his place. So ask yourself, if you want to know if Jesus is number one in your life, is there any sin in my life I'm not willing to put to death? Is there any sin in my life I'm not willing to put to death? Is there any act of service in the church that I think I'm too good to do? I'm above. Is there any person I fear displeasing more than displeasing Jesus? If you answer yes to any of those questions, if I answer yes to any of those questions, we already know what we need to do. We need to pray. We should pray that God would fill us with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And as we pray, we should ponder. We should think much about what God has already done for us in Christ. And that even when we sin, he still loves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to please you. At the heart of every true follower of Christ, we want to know your will and do it. And yet, Lord, we need spiritual wisdom and understanding. We don't have that from street smarts or book smarts. That's only something you can give us by your spirit through your word.
Lord, we pray that when we are asking questions about what's your will to take this job or do this ambition, I pray that we would have the normal reoccurrence of asking the question, does this please you? Does this honor you? Father, you tell us that if we want to know wisdom, we need to see Jesus. Jesus is our wisdom. Oh, Father, cause us to be a church that matures and grows and that we be a church that pleases you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.